Welcome to IVP's Hypergrowth Podcast. In this series, we talk with CEOs of the fastest growing companies and discuss the ins and outs of company building in the hypergrowth environment. If you like what you hear, consider following us on SoundCloud or subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Parsa Saljugian, an investor at IVP, back with another episode of the IVP Hypergrowth Podcast. And I'm excited to have with us today Enrique Dubagras, founder and CEO of Brex, the smartest corporate card in the room. Brex is rebuilding B2B financial products, starting first with a corporate card for technology companies and now for e-commerce businesses. By building its products from scratch, Brex has reimagined traditional underwriting models, offering its cards with no personal guarantees, instant approvals, and modern payment terms. The company has raised over $200 million since founding and is valued at over $1 billion today. IVP was fortunate to invest in the company's Series C round last October, and we've been impressed by Brex's continued progress and pace of innovation. Enrique met his co-founder, Pedro, seven years ago in Brazil after a friendly argument online. At the age of 16, they decided to start Pegarme, which quickly became known as the Stripe of Brazil. They sold the business in 2016 after growing it to $1.5 billion in transaction volume. And then the both of them moved to Palo Alto to enroll at Stanford, But after eight months, they dropped out to co-found Brex, which was born out of frustration when their company had cash in the bank from investors, but they could not open up a credit card account. In today's episode, I'll get Enrique's thoughts on recruiting and compensation, navigating competition from incumbents, his product development philosophy, and other general learnings as he's navigated the company through this hypergrowth phase. So with that, let's welcome our guest. Thanks for joining us today, Enrique. Hi, Parsa. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So I gave a quick overview of Brex, but I'll turn it over to you. In your own words, help explain what Brex is and what pain point you're solving. Yeah, so I think, you know, um, I would say Brex solves two main pain points. Uh, The first one around underwriting, we give companies higher limits with no personal guarantee very fast. Um, Instead of traditionally, you know, you have to get, you would get a lot lower limits. You have to personally guarantee your card. Um, and it would took several weeks to get a card, right? And we did that for startups first, and now we just launched e-commerce. Um, and where for e-commerce, actually, you have a lot better payment terms. So you get 60-day free, interest-free uh, line of credit for, you know, basically two months. So whatever you spend today, you pay 60 days from now. Whatever you spend tomorrow, you pay 61 days from now, like a true 60-day line of credit. So that's kind of like on the underwriting side. On the technology side, what we've basically did is that we rebuilt the entire technology stack from scratch, and that allows us to build a lot of stuff that you know no one else has built before, like a much easier way to capture receipts, add, user, add users, remove users, set limits for cards, um, you know, better statements, better products. I think you know you just have to. A lot of times you have to use it to get it, but there, there's a lot better technology there. Got it. Well, I'm excited to to unpack all of that in in today's episode. But maybe going back to the beginning, you applied to YC with the VR startup, and then you came out with Brex. So what happened there, and what was the motivation for you and Pedro to get back into fintech? When we sold our last company in payments, you we were like, oh my god, I'm done with payments. Like. Um, dealing with banks and regulation, this seems so hard. So we want to do something different. And then we went to school and then, you know, a little bit into school, we're like, okay, we want to do something different. VR seems seems the bleeding edge of technology. Let's do a VR startup, right? 
So we did that um, and got into YC of that idea, but soon we realized that we had no clue what we were doing. Um, you know, we knew a lot about payments, but we had no clue how to do VR. And that's kind of like how we, we, we decided to do something else. And then we started looking for other ideas and we ended up realizing that payments is actually what we love and financial services is actually what we love. And, you know, is what we are as founders are mostly um, prepared to do, right? We had an unfair advantage building Brex because we had built a payments company before. And we had an unfair disadvantages building VR because, you know, we, we know nothing about hardware companies or VR per se. It's well known that the first 10 employees really set the foundation for a company. And what I think is interesting is that when you started Brex, your first two hires were very non-traditional. So you hired a CFO and a general counsel. So maybe talk about why you hired those two roles and what it was that got you to convince these two individuals to join your company, which at the time was pretty nascent. What we soon realized is that owning the stack was the most important thing we had to do. So owning all the technology, having a really good bank relationship, you know, have a good support from the networks, like being able to control 100% of our destiny was what would enable us to create a great product. And, you know, and for that, we, we didn't see regulation as a blocker. We saw regulation as actually an enabler, but we didn't know a lot about it here in the U.S. So, you know, we hired a CFO and a general counsel that had experience, you know, dealing with banks and getting partnerships with banks and also U.S. regulation. And, you know, the four of us kind of like came together with, how do we deliver the experience that we want? And as you said, it was pretty tough because both of them were pretty senior. Michael, our CFO, you know, he was chief revenue officer at SoFi before. So it was a pretty big role. And this was before, you know, um, SoFi got in the press a lot. And then Vince was, you know, recently came out of Stripe, already had like a great experience there. And I think that, you know, they both got impressed about the vision that we had and like, what we wanted to build and also the opportunity to use what they learned through their prior years to do it right for the first time, you know, like not have to fix it later, but do it correctly from the beginning. And I think because of that, you know, we were able to work on Brex and an accelerated velocity that allowed us to grow really, really quickly. And so you mentioned it was important to you know, own the tech stack. We're going to dig into that in a little bit, but it sounds like this is very fintech specific. So to the fintech founders who are listening to this podcast, would you recommend that they should hire a CFO and a general counsel as their first two hires to sort of navigate the world the same way that you did? I think it depends on your idea and the way you want to do it. I think if, you know, whatever you're doing, I wouldn't do a bad banking partnership or something like that. I would own the stack. So in order, if you need that, if you need a banking partnership or you need to get licensing or any kind of regulatory stuff in order to begin, yes, I would hire them. Otherwise, no. And talking about this topic of recruiting, You've, you've discussed publicly about the fact that the current startup compensation model is broken. And I'm curious, from your perspective, what is it that's broken? What's your compensation philosophy? And how do you ultimately get people to join your company? I think there's a few things. The first one is this underlying assumption that by giving a lot of equity to people, they necessarily feel more or less ownership. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that, you know, people who want equity and then you give them equity, they feel definitely feel more ownership. But I think there are so many failed startups in the Bay Area that a lot of people don't care too much about it. And they're like, hey, you know, I want the impact that I get to do in a startup in a small 
organization and you know doing things in a with much much larger impact but honestly like i i don't want to take the risk of the equity because you know it doesn't make sense for me right now or the other way around right where someone you know actually made some money before or has a really low cost of living and like hey i don't care about you know making tons of cash and therefore um i i want a big equity package right so you know, I think that both those people can feel great sense of ownership for the company. It doesn't have to do necessarily with the amount of equity that they have. They can choose how much they want in cash, how much they want in stock. Some people, you know, we give them a total compensation offer. Some people take 90% cash, 10% stock. Some people take, you know, 30% cash, 70% stock. I think there's this assumption and this kind of like thing in Silicon Valley, which I think it was true in the past. I'm not sure if it's true now that by necessarily by giving everyone a lot of equity, they're going to be more aligned and feel more ownership. I think that may be true in other cities or any part other parts of the world. I think it's less and less true each day here in, in the U.S. I think you're in an interesting position where you have a lot of capital, but maybe in the Pagarme days or to other founders that, that haven't raised as much capital, do you think this is something that could work for them as well? We always had similar philosophies since we, we had raised our Series A. So my advice on that is hire less people, but, you know, get the best people that you can and pay them well instead of, you know, so you're going to increase your burn anyway. I'd rather increase it with less people that are really good than more people that are either underpaid or, you know, not as great. Hiring is obviously something that's been important to you over the course of the last two years and, and even when you started your first company, but you're now in this incredibly, incredibly rapid growth phase and you've hired over 100 people in the last two years and quadrupled over the last year. Help understand a little bit about the differences or the similarities to hiring in the early days versus hiring today when you're in this crazy growth phase from your perspective and from a company philosophy standpoint. Honestly, for us, it, it, it seemed like it changed much, but it didn't change too much. I think, you know, w- when we got here, a lot of people, you know, told us, hey, you're the first 10 hires. And we actually struggled to do the first 10 hires. You know, we did a CFO and general counsel, but like the first engineers and stuff like that, it was really tough. We just didn't know anyone in Silicon Valley, right? So he goes, oh, why didn't you hire Stanford friends? Well, my Stanford friends were all freshmen. So, you know, it wasn't a very good pool. It was really, really struggling. And we did a lot of counterintuitive things in the beginning that people tell you not to do. So we paid tons of recruiting fees. You know, if we found if like these recruiters that they're, they're not on retainer, they're like just on commission. Like if they bring, if you hire someone, you pay them. Like we had five of them working for us. If we found someone that we, that we like, we paid them, but we kept the bar very, very, very high. I think that's something we had from the beginning is like, hey, the first 10 people are going to set the culture and set the tone. Like, we're going to keep that far high. And I think as the company grows, you know, we build out a recruiting team. We have a lot more referrals. And I think the thing that gets easier is that you have a lot more people and then those people refer more people. So it becomes easier. And honestly, the other thing that we had is like we, we took a long time to launch publicly. We launched public. We started the company March 17. We only launched June 18. So before then, people wouldn't like respond to our reach outs and LinkedIn because, you know, no one knew what like Brex was a coming soon thing. You know, I think we were even in a better position than most startups. We were second time founders. We had like famous VCs backing us and like we were to went through YC. But in general, the first 10 people is just a hustle. But, you know, even though it's a hustle, you can't lower your bar. As the company grows, you know, the, the, the challenges are similar in the sense that you know, now every team is starving, right? And you're telling every manager that they have to build a team. So, you know, people let the urgency of the hire reduce the quality of the people. And like, that's something that Pedro and I were 
all the time pushing against it. Let's not let the urgency of the hire reduce the quality of the people and repeat that over and over. There's some, some really interesting points there of hiring quickly but keeping the bar high. There's a tension there, but I think it's really important to make sure you don't lower that quality bar. So staying on, on this topic of, of, of hyper-growth, you've grown to over 100 people, but now you're shipping products super quickly, you're moving at the speed of lightning. Hiring is one part of your job, but maybe help us understand What's been the hardest thing of managing Brex through this phase of crazy lightning fast growth? Honestly, like the the toughest thing in our our speed of growth is just choosing what fires you're gonna let burn. You can't want everything to be perfect. Like you need to let some stuff be bad. And choosing what are those things is not always obvious, right? Because every stakeholder that works on that thing is gonna be very upset if you choose their thing, right? So what are the things that we're willing to not be great in the beginning in order to move fast? I think that's like one of the most challenging things. How you you manage some of these challenges you're going through hypergrowth. There are a lot of other founders that have gone through the scaling phase as well, whether it's fintech or not. You've got a board of directors that you trust. You have other investors you've met. You probably have mentors. So how do you think about who to go to when you have questions about what you need to do organizationally to manage some of these challenges? I think a lot of times I meet people, I ask them, what do you think, you know, what they think they're really good at? I ask it in a nice way and like, you know, hey, you know, you have such a fascinating story. You, you seem to be good at so many things like, you know, but if you had to choose one thing that you say, wow, this like I'm probably better than most people, what would you, you know, say? And then they usually respond and, you know, that helps to say, hey, who's good at what? Sometimes I, I go to like the person that I think knows the most about this specific subject. Sometimes I go to people who went through, I know, went through similar situations. And sometimes I just go to people I trust the most, right? Is there anybody who you look to as a mentor or another founder or company that, that you look at and say, wow, they did this really well? Yeah, I, there's no one company that I say, oh, everything about this company is great, right? There's different companies. So inside and outside of tech, like outside of tech, for example, where um, we, we really like the founders of 3G Capital. They're like good mentors to us and we're early investors at Brex. And, you know, we really like the philosophy that they had around, you know, growing people from the inside, hiring and promoting young people, compensating people well, etc. We don't agree or not that we don't agree. We don't think that some of their things is applicable to us. For example, the whole cost cutting culture, um, you know, it's it's not the business that we're in. So uh, we you can't copy everything from one company. You need to see what each of them are the best at, right? It's about taking the, the best pieces of every company and, and hopefully bringing it back to Brex. You talked about building the, the technology infrastructure from scratch, which is a big investment even before you launched. But maybe help our audience understand a little bit about why it's so important to do that and, and what benefits there are in the short term, but also the long term of building a product and building the infrastructure yourself. The main benefits are around just control. So the problem with, like in my opinion, a lot of fintech today is you know they can build a, a nice little app or API or skin in top of an existing financial infrastructure. But in the end, you're going to be, you know, halted by the financial infrastructure. Like that, those financial apps where they have a beautiful UI, but then it takes three days to get approved. If you own your own technology and your own destiny, you can do things like we do of instant approval, right? And improve that over time and not have to convince someone else that that is what you do. And, you know, for that, you need to really understand like the creation of B2B financial products or any financial products, in our opinion, is the integration of technology, finance, or regulation. You need to integrate those three things to actually, you know, do stuff. Maybe sometimes it doesn't make sense to partner, but how do you think about when you build, when you partner with others, 
And ultimately, do you want to own everything yourself, or does it make sense sometimes to actually partner with somebody who might have a specialization that's this valuable and probably not something you want to bring in house? I don't think there's a generic answer to that. Each company needs to have their own strategy. My guideline would be do whatever you need to do, but don't compromise on your core product, if that makes sense. So I'll give an example. Like for us, doesn't like our core product is credit cards, but we do have, for example, you a travel partner that you can use points to redeem um, travel. And it doesn't didn't make sense for us to you know rebuild and try an entire travel portal, you know, because it's not core to our business. What's core to our business is building credit cards, right? And so one of the differentiating factors we talked about is building your technology from scratch. And I think that's one thing that was different from some of the incumbents. But really just pushing on that, you've got a product that's disrupting multi-billion dollar companies, Amex, Chase, and, and others on the credit card side. But they also have a lot of capital, a lot of resources. I think their, their commercial division is multiple billions in, in revenue, 20 to 30% profit margins. So they technically have the resources to try to build a technology solution that can emulate what you're building at Brex. And so maybe help us understand a little bit about what it is that you're really doing that's differentiated and why a company like that can't put the resources together to be a competitor. So I think that, you know, it goes to a little bit of the DNA of a company. So resources, there's only so many things you can put money in and, you know, see whatever goes out. Um, I think if you're competing like a company like Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft, they're actually really good at engineering and they can, you know, and they can actually do a lot of stuff. And if they t- decide to compete with you, you know, you're, it's kind of a problem. And some companies win, some companies lose. But with banks, they're, they're just like, you know, this technological DNA that's really, really hard to, to compare to a, a technology company, right? They're just like financial companies and brand companies. Like the, the big banks, they just can't attract the talented engineers. And even if they wanted to change their core systems, there's so much stuff going on. The migration process is so arduous. I think, you know, for those who read Seven Powers, there's one called counter positioning. And I think this applies to this, which is it makes sense for Amex or, you know, other banks to not change their core systems and let, you know, us eat some market share of people that care about that because it's too costly for them and it's too risky for them and their regulators wouldn't be happy with it, all of that, right? So that's, you know, one thing. The things that we can do differently are the technological features that I told. Like we can do this different underwriting model in which we can look at this real-time underwriting model where we can look at cash balances and sales volumes and other things in order to decide um, how much to give the limit and re-underwrite a customer every day. Um, we can create instant onboarding in which, you know, you can sign up and instantly get a virtual card and all the KYC, AML, and regula- regulatory checkups can be done real-time on the back end. We can make it super easy for you to read your statements, things like that. That was a big part of what got us excited, and I think you mentioned one thing there, that your ability to hire really, really incredible talent compared to these banks, which just aren't going to be able to attract the same talent as you, has allowed you to to not only build this infrastructure, but ship products incredibly quickly. And I think one thing we looked for in our diligence was, and we understood, was the product velocity. And so you launched the original corporate card for startups. You recently launched in the e-commerce. You have this robust rewards program, and there's a lot on the horizon. But maybe help us understand a little bit about your product development philosophy and how do you decide which products you want to build because you want to move quickly, but at the same time, you want to remain focused. Our philosophy on this is like, we want to build products that we can be the best at. 
if we're just going to build something that someone else built, you know, we rather integrate with them. An, an example of that is around expenses, right? Like we had uh, multiple discussions over time, like, are we going to go and build something like Expensify Concur or are we going to partner with them? And we ended up deciding to partner with them because there's so much there that we would just be repeat process. So how can we deliver the best experience for the customer by integrating really well with those guys and at the same time doing only the parts that we're uniquely positioned to do because we're the credit card. We just want to do what only we can do. And you mentioned that you have a lot of discussions internally on, on product. And a big part of a firm's culture is decision making. And I'm sure in the early days, it was you and Pedro and you know the different product hires that you brought in making decisions. But how do you now, given you're moving so quickly, you have a lot of different you know, VP level hires and a lot of different people on the product side decide and make decisions on what actually to move forward with? I think, you know, um, on the general pipeline, I think, you know, we take a lot of input, but it's still our decision in the end. Um, but on the specifics, and the specific implementation of the products in the day to day, it's you know it's pretty like we're 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 building out a product team that's you know pretty solid. The final topic here just is around you as a CEO and you know some of your learnings. And as you look back on your time at Brex the last you know two years and your experience at Pigarme with uh, with Pedro, what's one lesson you've learned the hard way that you think a founder listening to this podcast would really appreciate? So the lesson I learned the hard way is that, you know, sometimes you read about the best CEOs, right? And you read about the stories about how Elon Musk, you know, he there was this guy that wasn't doing his job super well and taking a month to do something. And then Elon Musk just spent the whole night, redid everything in like one night, right? And was done with it just to show everybody. And it was like, fuck, if that's what, you know, needs to be a great CEO, I'm really not that. When you're looking at a lot of CEOs, you, you keep comparing yourself and it's just really hard to know the real story and it's also really hard to, to, you know, know what you're supposed to do. And the reality is that, in my opinion, being a CEO is that you should do what you're really great at and you should hire for everything else. That's your only job. Um, you need to be good at, you know, the, the things that you're good at and, like, bring an amazing team around you to do everything you're not the best at because at high-growth companies, they grow so quickly uh, you know, I don't think CEOs have time to learn how to do everything. So it's really struggling for a CEO to think like, hey, I'm underperforming because, you know, there's this thing I'm supposed to be good at. I'm not. The thing you're supposed to be good at is like a few things you already are and you get better at them and then hiring for the rest. I think it's important to, to bring in people that complement your skill set. And just on that point, in terms of your own personal development, you know, where, what's one area that you think you personally can develop the most? There's a few things I'm really good at, and I, I want to spend more time developing them. So, you know, I think recruiting is like one of my top skills. Uh, you know, I think we did a really good job putting a, a good team together. But I think, I, for example, as the company grew, I felt a little bit that I was losing the hustle because, you know, company's doing super well, a billion dollar valuation, blah, 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 all that. And you kind of like lose the hustle. And now like I'm trying to like get back and like, hey, this is like day one, right? Like, you know, if there's someone that's great, we need to go all in after them and, you know, and like not that let them escape and get them at all costs. So I think like, you know, being even better at recruiting um, is something I'm personally trying to get better at and also being more deliberate about culture and communication. I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a really good writer. I'm a pretty verbal person. And I think as the company grows, transforming the culture from a verbal culture to a, like a written culture is something I have a lot in my mind and I'm trying to get better at. 
And I think one thing we can agree that you've been really good at is the fundraising process. What is it that you look for in an investor and what advice do you have to those listening about the fundraising process and any lessons that you've either learned the hard way or you've mastered that uh, would be valuable to know? Honestly, like fundraising has come quite naturally to us. Um, and my, my lesson is build relationships with the people before asking for money. So in the end of the day, you know, what I don't like doing is like never talking to a single investor. And then for two weeks, you go out, pitch everybody, you know, and then go back, raise money and go back to work. I think that, you know, choosing your lifetime partners that are going to give you capital and support and advice for a long period of time is something that you should do more deliberately and think and get to know them better over time. Whenever that VC that you like wants to take a coffee meeting, just take the meeting, proactively reach out and ask them for help, see who helps you even before, you know, they invest, right? And build these relationships over time. I think that's, you know, the, the biggest thing that we did. So for example, you know, if you guys, I knew so much for, you know, a few months already before we did the round and already liked him for a while, right? Now, given the status of the company, are getting pinged every day by a bunch of different people. How do you make sure it's just not overwhelming? Because you still need to run the business. You still need to make product decisions. You need to spend time on recruiting and make that a real focus. So how do you make sure it doesn't get too out of whack in terms of your time? References are always useful. It's rare that I take a meeting that someone uh, coldly reached out, a VC coldly reached out. But one of, one of my founder friends or one of my investors refers someone and said, hey, this is a great person. Like, I, I make it a priority to spend the time. We've always found the warm intros are the easiest way for us to get in, in front of other founders. The, uh, the final question I have is, is a fun one. Everybody's seen the billboards in San Francisco, New York, and wherever else you have them. But who came up with that idea, and have you actually found them to be effective? Yeah, so, you know, it was extremely effective. I, I talked about this publicly already, but it was the best thing we did. Um, like, I think the level of awareness that Brex has compared to how much time we launched, like, remember, it was like nine months ago, is very big. Uh, and I think the billboards did a lot of work for that. So initially, we did it for mostly for recruiting purposes. We're like, hey, if people can know who we are, you know, it's going to help us recruit. Um, and also because we were launching and we thought, it might, we thought it might be fun to like supplement the press with some billboards. But after a while, we figured out that, you know, it's actually responsible for delivering the, our brand message and awareness. And that helps in all the other aspects of the company. So, you know, it's not as expensive as everybody thinks and it's actually really effective. So I really recommend it. Awesome. Well, Enrique, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It was a pleasure to have you and we're excited to see what's next for you and Brex. Awesome. Thanks, Parsev. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to IVP's Hypergrowth Podcast. You can learn more about us on IVP.com or join the conversation on Twitter by tweeting at IVP.